Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, Andreas M. Antonopoulos rejoins me on the show to talk about mastering Lightning and also using BTC Pay Server. But first, a message from the show sponsors. Have you looked into Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges, really impressive in terms of the way they operate and the focus on security that they're known for? They've got a high quality platform. High trading volume with low fees and no minimum or hidden fees. They have 24-7 support. They've got Kraken Pro mobile app. Kraken Pro delivers all the security and features you love about the Kraken Exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for advanced Bitcoin trading on the go. There's also Kraken OTC Desk and with the recent acquisition of Circle Trade as well. This is for customers seeking more private, personalized service. There's also Kraken Margin up to five times long and short and Futures up to 50 times leverage. Go and sign up at kraken.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Unchained Capital. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the work Unchained Capital are putting out recently and check out some of my recent episodes with Parker Lewis and also Dhruv Bansal. They're a financial services company providing multi-signature products and services. They've got an approach to collaborative custody that gives users control over their private keys. So Unchained offer two of three multi-signature vaults. These are a great option if you're thinking about how best to secure your Bitcoin for the long term. And if you ever need to access liquidity, but you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, that's where Unchained's collateralized loans offer a unique option. So you can put up Bitcoin, it's stored on-chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses, it's never rehypothecated, and you can even share in the security of that Bitcoin by holding one of three keys. I'm really impressed with Unchained. They've got excellent services. I think you'll enjoy partnering with them for your Bitcoin financial services. Learn more at unchained-capital.com. Next up, CypherSafe, producing the Cypher Wheel product. Are you keeping your Bitcoin BIP39 seed backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident? If not, look into the Cypher Wheel. It's a new product, it's compact, it comes in a wheel shape masking the words of your seed unless you actually open the tamper evident seal. And Daniel from CypherSafe has been working on some improvements to the product and getting it ready for release so the product is currently available for pre-order you can get it at cyphersafe.io so make sure you or your loved ones have access to bitcoins if an accident occurs the link is in the show notes lastly check out givebitcoin.io the easiest and safest way to get your friends and family into bitcoin take it from me i've given bitcoin to people before and they lost it they just didn't know what they were receiving that's why I saw a huge value in Give Bitcoin, which lets you buy Bitcoin for friends and family with just their email address. And here's the twist. Your gift is time delayed with a regulated US custodian for one year, during which time Give Bitcoin delivers 12 monthly lessons to that recipient to speed them through that learning curve. Imagine if you could jump them through to that point of becoming a hodler. Give Bitcoin has input from many well-known Bitcoiners, including SafeDean, Matt O'Dell, Citizen Bitcoin, and others. I'm also an advisor with a small equity stake assisting with the curriculum. Keep an eye out for some more exciting announcements coming from givebitcoin.io. I'm really excited to have them as a sponsor. So today, Andreas rejoins me on the show. He first appeared on episode 53, and we were talking about Bitcoin maximalism. Now, for this episode, we speak more about... Mastering Lightning, his upcoming book, and also his experiences using BTC Pay Server. And so we talk a little bit about his process on learning Lightning Network, what are some of the challenges that Lightning Network users face today, as well as some different tools that Bitcoin users can use, such as RTL, Ride the Lightning, and MyNode. Here's the interview. Andreas, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again. Oh, it's uh, yeah. Uh, I I know you're doing. You've got a lot on. I know well, a couple a couple months ago you announced recently alongside Laulu Asuntikun and Renee Picard that you're working on mastering lightning. So I'm I'm excited to see the result of that. Let's talk a little bit about how that came about. Um, so I've I've been involved in the Lightning Network oof, uh, for a very long time. Probably um, back in 2016. I started uh, trying to learn about it enough so I could write about it in Mastering Bitcoin. So in Mastering Bitcoin Second Edition, there's a whole chapter um, uh, about Lightning Network, uh, which many people haven't even noticed. But it was very early days, and I wrote about it when it was still uh, in the beta stage. 
I started running a node. Um, in fact, uh, I wrote a little script that allowed me to take the graph output, uh, which was the, um, the machine description of what nodes existed on the network and how they were connected, and put it through some graphic software and create one of those little bubble diagrams. Uh, and turns out I was the first person to do that. And I produced a picture of the lightning network that had seven nodes on it. And mine was one of them, um, <laughs> which I'm hoping one day to be in the Smithsonian. Uh, so I tweeted about that. <laughs> that was the uh, January of 2017, uh, with a test net. I ran my nodes on the test net for a year. And then, uh, in, um, 2018, when the production network started, uh, I started running my node there. So I have one of the longest running nodes on the network, and it's been a fascinating journey. I was always really interested in it. I think it's it's unleashed um, a speed of development and innovation that um, isn't really possible in the Bitcoin base chain, which has to be much more conservative. And so many fascinating things are happening. Um, so... I just got involved in that, and at some point, I thought, "Well, this this has to be this has to be my next technical book." And it took almost um, eight months of planning uh, to get up to the announcement, and then another <laughs> five months have passed since then. So it's it's been a year in the works. Um, in it, it surprisingly takes quite a lot of time to negotiate, plan, and execute on a book, and we're not really starting to write until uh this month so this is when we're really diving in we've done some outlining written a bit of chapters one two and three uh it's on github and uh and it was announced in august and it's going to publish sometime in q4 of 2020 that's awesome and one thing that i see it following lightning is that it's just changing so quickly and so then quickly the question then is how do you write a book about it when it's moving so quickly well, the good news is I had plenty of experience and practice with Ethereum on writing a book about a moving target that was moving too fast for me to put down on paper. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, one of the things that I've I've been practicing and I think I'm getting better at, um, you know, this, this will be the third technical book, effectively fourth, because Mastering Bitcoin Second Edition was almost a complete rewrite. And I've, I've gotten good at striking this careful balance between writing about the things that are the essence, uh, the unchanging truths of something um, that won't change in a few months, and also just capturing a, a snippet of all of the things that are in progress and the direction they're going, so that at least some of the book is still valid a year later or two when I have to do another edition. It's it's a it's a careful balance, right? Yeah, and a, a quick a, a quick example off the top of my head would be something like okay, right now one of the key concepts in Lightning is this idea of HTLC routing, right? Right, and then potentially once we get Schnorr and Taproot, then that might change to PTLC, point time lock, you know, yes, uh, routing. Which um, PT, uh, payment uh, payment points are uh, very interesting. Uh, concept, but um, you can't really do, you can kind of do them with elliptic curve digital signature algorithms, but it's very kludgy. Uh, whereas with Schnorr, you can do them very elegantly. Um, and that's that's one way that we're going to see a, a big development. And, and you know, maybe if we have one more uh, change, which is the... Um, I don't know what they call it now. It was called uh, SigHash No Input. So uh, any prev out, any prev out. It's changed names many times. But if we get that change, which is a bit more difficult to get into the protocol, uh, then we're looking at L two E L T O O, which is a another very big change. But both of these changes are changes in the inner mechanics. Of Lightning, they're not changes in the fundamental concepts or um, the the layout or the architecture or you know the essence of the thing. The essence remains the same, uh, which is transmitting uh, previously signed transactions uh, in a person to person or peer to peer model uh, and routing between multiple uh, of these bilateral commitments. 
um, to, to make a whole network where you can get security speed um, and privacy. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic concept and it has so much more to, to go. Right, yeah. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your own process then of uh, writing and uh, researching around the Lightning Network and what goes into the book and what doesn't? Right. So um, first of all, for any technology, my learning experience is trying to explain it to others. And in order to do that, I first have to use it. So um, in order to understand a technology, I use it. And that means running the code uh, and then running into the bugs and doing bug reports and (laughs) rewriting and hacking through the code. Um, And so that process really started more than two years ago when I started operating my own Lightning node and ran into all of the problems that you would expect with an experimental technology. Um, I then decided about uh, four months ago to up the stakes a bit, and I started running a shop on top of my Lightning node so that I'd have some real skin in the game, right? Um, uh, To really create uh, an environment where uptime and availability mattered, where payments would flow, where inbound capacity mattered, uh, to really make it a functional node, and that's been the case. so I play with it. I, I play with all of the different versions of the software. I run uh, LND and C Lightning, and I have all of the wallets on my on my phone. Um, I I finally discovered what the limit of application groups is in Android uh, to where you know when you click on Android and it pops up a little application group and tiles all the little apps. Did you know that it goes to a second page if you have too many in that group? And, oh, and, I didn't know that. And, yeah, and then it puts a little scrolly dot at the bottom, and you have to swipe to go to the next page. Well, because that's just how many lightning apps there are, my, right? My my uh, my crypto wallets uh, group in <laughs> in my Android phone is now two pages long, um, and I think it's a five by five grid. So I think I passed. Uh, no, it's a four by four grid. So uh, once you go over sixteen, you go to the second page. Um, yeah, so I run all of the wallets. Um, yeah. Now, in terms of uh, actually writing the book, um, I I really believe in using stories uh, and taking a real life example. Otherwise, technology gets too dry unless you talk about specific applications and specific people. Um, so I start with Alice and Bob. Uh, Alice buying a cup of coffee in Bob's coffee shop which ironically was obviously the first example I had in Mastering Bitcoin and then got a a ton of criticism from people when the fees got uh, expensive and that application was no longer quite as comfortable uh, on the blockchain. So now I'm revisiting it. So now Alice has a Lightning wallet um, and and Bob is is running a Lightning node. So we're doing that. Um, And then basically... uh, following a a transaction or a few transactions like that through the network. And as it touches each layer of the technology, explain that layer and and break out with real examples. The other thing is all of the examples are real, meaning that every transaction you see, just like in my book, uh, every command I type, every output you see, I do on actual computers that are set up in that environment. So the transactions are on the blockchain. You can follow the channel open and channel close. You can look at them with a block explorer. You can explore them. Now, one thing I'm doing differently for this book, uh, which has been a progression, is when I started Mastering Bitcoin, the first edition, I wrote probably 90% of that book by myself. Um, By the second edition... um, I wrote about 80%. Uh, with Mastering Ethereum, I wrote about 60%. And the rest is contributions from people. So encouraging community contributions and collaboration. Why uh, Why spend time trying to um, really, really dig into a concept that's very difficult to understand um, and write it from scratch when someone has probably already written something that fits almost perfectly, and I can get them to contribute it to the book, um, and then I can play the role of uh, maestro, of um, orchestra conductor, right? So 
uh, I can then take a step back and look at the overall narrative, the what goes in and what stays out, the how do you link these things together? How do you explain them better and do the um, the editing and the language? With Mastering Lightning, I'm, I'm trying to take that even further. Uh, so my goal with every book is to write less um, and uh, get more collaborators and do more of the uh, high-level orchestration and um, narrative. And I've got two fantastic collaborators um, right off the bat. Uh, so um, this, is, uh, this is very much a book where all three of us are uh, equals in this collaboration. Um, we're going into it with that mentality. And um, it's it's been a great collaboration so far. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and uh, I suppose you can also crowdsource different answers to things. So for example, you might see a good explanation for something on Bitcoin Optech or on Quora or the or one of those uh what's it, uh the Stack Exchange, right? Yeah. The Bitcoin Stack Exchange. Yeah. So, and you can sort of pull from there. Um Rene Picard, my co-author, is the uh third uh third most prolific contributor on Stack Exchange. Uh, so it would be his answers anyway. He was also someone who had already started writing uh, a lightning book. Um, and he's contributing excerpts of that wholeheartedly into this. Um, but there's also a lot of interest in the community. Uh, you know, the lightning community is a very vibrant, uh, community with a lot of developers, um, but also a lot of non-technical contributors and a lot of people who simply want to learn. And one of the best ways they can learn is by reading, fixing, and trying out various examples and in the process, contributing their own answers to it. Um, so for Mastering Ethereum, the last book I did in this model, I think we had somewhere around 4,000 commits and pull requests from uh, more than 180 contributors, uh, all of whom were acknowledged in the preface. I'm hoping to take that up to 250 contributors and maybe five or 6,000 contributions for this book. It takes a village right? In, in the pure sense of the open source spirit. And you can actually watch the book being written online um, as it goes. It's on github.com slash LN book. Um, and it's crap right now. Uh, and it will, <clears throat> it will remain crap for a few months and gradually it will, it will start taking shape. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress. Uh, in writing a book like this, especially writing it open source, uh, we have to uh, get comfortable with a lot of vulnerability and and just put our our best work, which at first is crap, as I mentioned, out there, uh, and, and let people criticize it, and then come back with the classic open source answer. It's like, oh, you think it's wrong? Great, make a pull request. <laughs> <laughs> right, and and uh, one concept that's coming to my mind as well when you're writing a book like Mastering Lightning is you've got different layers at which you can talk about things, yeah. right? Because you've got the specification, right? The I think it's 11 bolts. The bolts and yeah. then you've got you've got actual implementations, right? Yeah. So C Lightning, LND, Eclair, and, and some others. And then you've also got on top of that specific software, right? Like Zap the or Spark. Yeah, the, the clients, but also even above that, the laps. Uh, the Lightning applications, which which are not uh, wallet interfaces, but are front ends to various applications, games, forums, um, you know, things you can do with Lightning, not not simply uh, payment applications, like um, or not simple wallet applications. That's right. And so then how do you think about trying to explain that or weave that into a story? Might you do one story that has, okay, this is a story that's involving, you know, C Lightning and Spark and one particular application and then another story with LND. Like how do you yeah, how do you think about that? Exactly. That's one of the things we do. Um, one of the things is to take a, a single story and first run it at a very surface level, uh, which is an experiential level. How does the user see an interaction, and that's the Alice buys a cup of coffee from Bob. Uh, then we can start talking about what is Alice's wallet doing in the background, and we can then dive in, and then we can say, oh, but if instead it was a different wallet, looks here's what it, it would do. Um, what is Bob's store running on? How does Bob do a point of sale? 
what's running underneath? And then we can talk about how Bob operates uh, a lightning node and how Bob maintains inbound capacity and rebalances channels and things like that. And then we can also go and look at many of the behind the scenes things that are happening in terms of routing, pathfinding, um, uh, payment channels, et cetera, and go all the way down into the protocol. We're not going to go all the way into rewriting the bolts um, because there, there's no reason to do that. The bolts exist. If you want to see what is the specific script that is used in an HDLC, um, you can just go to the bolt. And the idea here is to give a developer the ability to learn how to read the bolts, which bolts to read, and how they all fit together in a big picture way. Because the bolts are not designed as an educational tool. They're, they're a reference um, um, document. So we're not going to rewrite what's in the bolts. That would be a waste of time. We're going to go just above that level um, and then say, and for more detail, see bolt two, see bolt three, etc. And, and there's some topics we're simply not going to go into. Um, for example, I don't think there's much point in talking too much about the node-to-node protocol, the, the, the pure P2P message passing protocol, because that's not new technology. Um, the onion routing part is... We'll talk about that, but but the simple message exchange and you know negotiating which features each node supports with that that's fairly established technology. Uh, developer can find other resources. Uh, again, we want to write a book that isn't seven thousand pages long, uh, <laughs> which is another challenge. Uh, you got to go deep enough without making it a ridiculously unreadable tome. My goal is for three hundred pages. Um, it will be a difficult task. Excellent. Um, and I guess just turning now to Lightning more broadly, wh what are some of the more exciting developments that you are looking forward to over the next year, let's say? Do you have any in, in particular Lightning Gaming or any uh, you know, uh, routing uh, or LN URL, anything in particular? Uh, yeah, uh, so, so much. Let's see. I think for me, one of the important developments that is now happening was... Um, AMP, Atomic Multipath uh, Payments, uh, that's going to really, really improve the usability of Lightning and make it a lot easier to manage a node. Um, I think the other thing that I've been looking forward to and is beginning to emerge is um, more use of splice-in, splice-out, uh, submarine swaps and things like that in order to make uh, the difference between a Lightning wallet and an on-chain wallet disappear, where you have one wallet and it can do uh, payments to Bitcoin addresses or uh, Lightning invoices. Um, it manages its own channels and channel capacity. And all of that detail is hidden from the user. We're beginning to see the first of those emerge. Uh, and the ability to make sure that almost every transaction you do is both an on-chain uh, transaction and a channel management transaction. You should never miss the opportunity of an on-chain transaction to do some channel work, right? Um, because we are going to be facing a world in which fees are going to be higher. And I think that's a desirable characteristic because otherwise the block subsidy uh, will have to continue, you know, already. And, and many other chains, they're talking about what they call long tail distributions. Uh, meaning endless inflation um, and and continuing issuance forever so that they can subsidize miners. Uh, I don't think that's desirable in Bitcoin, which means we're going to need to operate in a world of higher fees. And in that world, you want to make sure that every time you go on chain and pay the fee, you take as much advantage of that space as possible with, with channel management. So that's another thing I'm looking forward to. I think we're seeing the beginning of that. But um, you know, recently, for example, the Async team launched a new wallet called Phoenix. Uh, they have the Eclair wallet, which is very popular. It's very easy to use. Um, Phoenix uh, is a new breed of, of wallets, which is where I thought we were going, and I'm glad to see, where you don't, you don't see channels unless you want to. 
where it manages inbound capacity for you um, and where uh, every transaction can be both on and off chain simultaneously. Yeah, that really changes it a lot in terms of help when you're helping with a beginner. I think Phoenix is probably a good example if you want to get them into Lightning you know, while still holding their own keys, obviously. Uh, I up to For me, at this point, I'm still mostly, when I'm working with a beginner, I'm personally just onboarding them more to just Bitcoin wallets, like yeah. Samurai Wallet, for example, because I think it's just not quite easy enough yet for them to go into Lightning on the first go. Uh, but what's your view around that? I, I would agree. Um, I would agree that we're not ready to start onboarding users directly to Lightning unless we take a shortcut and that shortcut is to use custodial lightning wallets uh which a lot of people do you know they'll they'll onboard users onto blue wallets for example uh and yeah of course if you do a custodial wallet it removes a lot of the difficulties of the protocol just as it did on on-chain transactions you know if you wanted to onboard a user, it's a hell of a lot easier to onboard them to a Coinbase wallet um, than it is to to make them control their own keys and have to write down twenty four English words and all of that palaver. But um, but you're doing that person a disservice. Um, you're you're showing them the Venmo of Bitcoin, <laughs> uh, in which case why why don't they just stay on Venmo? Um, the whole point of Bitcoin is is self custody. Uh, sovereignty, independence, empowerment. If you take those things away for the first demo, uh, then there's no point. Basically, what you're saying is that user wasn't ready and you shouldn't have introduced them yet. Um, anyhow, yeah, so so yeah, we're not we're not quite we're not quite there yet. That's okay. Yeah. And I think the other thing as well is there's some discussion around this idea that you know, obviously, chain fees will rise longer term. I think that's. I well, think we all agreed on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just they must do that. But the question then is, how much further in the future? And potentially, what we saw in twenty seventeen was like a unnatural amount of you know chain usage. Mm-hmm. And now that people, more people know about okay, using things like batching and using you know the latest versions of Segwit to save themselves uh, in terms of the fees and so on. I wonder is how much kind of runway of time is there that people can still use on chain on normal transactions so long as they're not like for the very small value uh roughly how much time there is before it really you you basically have to use lightning or some kind of other means oh I think we still have uh many years ahead of us uh where for the right kinds of transactions where it really matters. Uh, on-chain is absolutely going to be the right choice. Um, I don't think we're going to see the uh, scenario where on-chain is only used for channel management or in conjunction with channel management for quite a while. And and again, it depends on the kinds of uses you make. Um, I do payroll every month uh, in Bitcoin. I run payroll for my employees. Uh, so every month I have to do um, a, a bunch of uh, on-chain transactions. I mean, I use Bitcoin quite a lot. I, I probably do two or three transactions a week on a regular basis. Um, but the the ones that really matter to me are the kinds of transactions where first I'm quite happy to wait. Uh, so one block, eh, how about 10? 10 blocks is good enough when you're running payroll, right? Um, usually it's, uh, three business days if I do it through the banking system. So, um, even if I have to wait 150 blocks, I'm still beating the banks by a factor of three. Uh, (laughs) I'm not worried. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, uh, that gives me a lot more latitude to, um, to play hard with my, with my fees, right. To, to bid low and, and wait patiently. Uh, I use RBF replaced by fee and, and child pace for parents and other technologies to be able to bump fees when I need to, if something gets stuck, which is actually very, very rare. Um, I haven't paid more than a Satoshi per byte since, uh, since August of 2017. Um, and, um, and I, I'm kind of one of those curmudgeons who will be like, hell no, I'm not paying more than a Satoshi per byte. <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I'll wait for half a day, not, not longer. Um, and, uh, I use batching, 
Um, and and I also use uh, native SegWit addresses. In fact, I recently had my first complaint on the store um, because I've configured my BTC pay server uh, to only uh, issue native SegWit addresses. And, they, and someone complained and said, well, why are you only issuing native SegWit addresses? My wallet doesn't recognize them as a valid address. I'm like, dude, it's 2019, get a better wallet. Your wallet sucks. And just for the value of me being able to explain to you why your wallet sucks is why I have native SegWit only. Forget the fees. This, this, was, <laughs> this was a learning opportunity. And, um, and in fact, that person changed wallets thereafter. You know, it's, it's been two years. Uh, it's, yeah, it's time. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And now I'm a big supporter of Lightning. I, you know, I'm bullish on Lightning, but it, but it is also important to be realistic and say, well, what are the things that still need work? So, you know, a, a, a kind of a brief survey of the things in Lightning that still need work, you know, things like channel and liquidity management and making that easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, p- people could argue privacy as well. You know, you can still do probing. There's still payment correlation yeah. and potentially stuck payments. Uh, UI is smoothing out the problems when things go awry, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your view, what, where are the main areas where Lightning is falling down right now? Um, I think the biggest, the biggest difficulty is... Um, getting inbound capacity. Um, and a lot of that has to do with user experience, even more so than the, the raw technology. Uh, Lightning does require uh, either better user experience or uh, some, some steep learning curve, learning around uh, these little quirks that occur when you're dealing with payment channels. And, and the biggest quirk, of course, is that payment channels are asymmetric uh, things. Um, they have a balance on one side and a balance on the other side. Uh, the metaphor I, I use is, uh, think of it as you have a bowl of nuts in front of you and I have a bowl of nuts. And if I want to transfer nuts to you, I take some from my bowl and I put them in your bowl. Now you have more nuts in your bowl and I have fewer nuts in my bowl. Well, that works great, but if we start with my bowl being empty, obviously I can't give you any nuts. <laughs> and um, and that's hard to understand at first. It, it, it also is hard to understand together with the other aspect of it, which is there is also the nuts that are not in the bowls, but are on chain. And so the idea that you have a, a different balance on chain and a different balance in channels or off chain this makes it hard for users. And I think um, the idea that you set up a wallet and then the first thing that you expect to do with a wallet, which is receive money from someone else, is the one thing you can't do, uh, can be very difficult for people to understand. Of course, we can fix that. Um, and one of the interesting ways to fix that is um, is the ability to rent inbound capacity. So we're beginning to see some services that are emerging, and I, I would like to see these become algorithmic services rather than manual services, meaning that today you can um, pay someone to open a channel towards you with capacity so that you have inbound capacity, and they will then charge you based on how long you want that channel to stay open and how big that channel is. Um, which is actually a very nice way to price the opportunity cost of, of money, if you like, the, that it takes to create inbound capacity. Um, and once you have a bit of inbound capacity, you can actually build more fairly easily. So those services today require you to close down your wallet, open a browser, find a service. You don't know if that service is trustworthy or if it will deliver. Um, send them a payment, uh, get an inbound channel. I would like to see all of that automated. You know, there's no reason why your wallet can't do that by spending a few sats um, when you first start it up. And again, the other difficult thing is that the wallets take time to initialize, meaning that you can't simply open a new Lightning wallet and get started. At the very least, you're looking at um, three confirmations until you have your first channel. So, and it, usually longer than that, it, it probably takes about a day before you can actually start using the wallet. 
A better way to get around that is if exchanges start offering the ability to withdraw to a Lightning wallet, because then you solve both of those problems simultaneously. And I think that's where we're going. Uh, I think eventually we're going to see most withdrawals uh, originate from uh, exchanges that will also give you your first channels. Right. And I think we're seeing this now with Bitfinex, for example. And I know another company, uh, River Financial, are coming and they are going to be very much more Bitcoin and Lightning and allow you to dollar cost average and stack sats uh, and, and withdraw using Lightning as well. So sure. I think there are a few examples there. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I guess the other part is, you know, it's not just kind of the initial set, setup, but then the ongoing management, right? And then you might have to ongoing. So for example, Lightning Labs has loop in and loop out yeah. and you've got to continually, like it's about how much flow you can get through, not just the initial stock of that channel, let's say. Right. So uh, do you have any reflections on that and particularly your experience now being a merchant as well? Um. I, I don't think my experience being a merchant uh, can be extrapolated. You know how they say uh, the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, <laughs> but in my case, it's even worse than that because, listen, I'm running a, a, a lightning node that's called ln.aantonop.com. Uh, and so I am uh, very, very blatantly using my reputation to attract inbound channel capacity. <laughs> <laughs> It's an influencer privilege. Right, right. I, I got it easy from that perspective. Not everyone can do that. Um, so, so from that perspective, I can't really say because I have not run into any rebalancing problems. I actually have three times more inbound capacity than I have outbound capacity because of that. Um, and because when you have something to sell, uh, specifically on Lightning... Uh, people will open their first channel to you to make that payment. Um, and then they'll leave a little balance in there. Uh, so they'll open a channel usually that's a bit bigger than the payment they want to make. So you end up constantly increasing your inbound capacity. Um, I also do use a couple of techniques to rebalance, including making circular payments. So, um, you know, paying where my, my node is the destination and I go through a series of other nodes to rebalance. Um, of course, you know, we, we've seen mathematically, of course, that's a zero sum game, meaning that if I do that, I'm rebalancing my channels at the expense of unbalancing somebody else's channels, right? <laughs> um, so, so you've got to look at this from a network-wide perspective, and that's where technologies like loop in, loop out come into play. Um, I think that in the long run, basically every single on-chain transaction will also have uh, a whole number of channel uh, transactions in it to close and reopen channels, which is the best way to rebalance things. Um, and I would like to see a lot more of that happening automatically. And it's the kind of emergent service that can be priced, which again is one of the interesting things about uh, people at the moment are still thinking of Lightning primarily as a way for people to pay people in small amounts. But what they're not yet thinking about is machine-to-machine -machine payments in small amounts in order to automate the economics of various services, uh, microservices, APIs, and micropayments for, um, for services to machines. And of course, the first and most obvious application for that is microservices from Lightning nodes to Lightning nodes for Lightning. Uh, where you can your machine can buy a lightning service from another machine without you even knowing that it's doing so for a tiny tiny payment and that payment can be priced very very nicely um, because what you're pricing is that opportunity cost of money so you can say okay what is my rate of return i want for the opportunity cost of of locking up this money into a channel for a period of time Mm, right. Uh, I think a couple of things there. So one is typically companies have dealt with this more just by batching, right? So they would, in their sense, batching to do a monthly subscription, right? Yes. They just bill you once a month instead of streaming the payment. Mm -hmm. uh, so I suppose right now, I think because we're still in this phase where a lot of people want to hold, obviously. So it, it's not like there's a huge, huge amount of commerce happening on Lightning and it's still developing. It's still growing, obviously. Uh, but they might 
not really see it as a big deal that I, I can't stream the payment. I'll just pay you once a month, right? And I'll even on chain or do a lightning payment once a month. Um, so yeah, but but a counterpoint would be some some a company like Shortbits, right? So they are literally doing as you were saying. I think they're doing this idea of you pay for data and you you can right. pay with lightning. Right. So that's a that's a cool example. Well, if you if you think about it, if you batch these payments and pay once a, once a month, uh, what you've got there is uh, you're introducing an element of counterparty risk. It's no longer trustless. So if you're paying in advance, then you're trusting the vendor or provider that they will continue to provide the service even though you've after you've paid for it for the entire duration of that month, uh, or you're basically giving out the service and hoping that at the end of the month, the customer will be true to their payment. Either way, someone's taking a risk. And the whole point of streaming payments is, is basically to cut down the window of risk uh, to the duration of that uh, payment. So if instead of doing it monthly, you do it daily, now you t- you're taking one thirtieth of the risk 30 times a month uh, for that same service. Now that risk carries with it a financial cost. Um, and that financial cost can be estimated. Now that's what actuarial sciences are all about. So then you've got to start balancing that against the hassle of making micropayments. And there are certainly many industries in which that risk is absolutely worth uh, paying or taking the hassle to do streaming streaming money. And I, I think streaming money is going to become a huge, huge thing. One of the areas where it becomes an obvious advantage is games. Um, so in the area of games, uh, we can do a lot more interesting things if we have the ability to make uh, small streaming payments without the counterparty risk of simply give all the money to the game company and hope they're going to hold it well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some good points there. Um, I, I'm also keen to talk about BTC pay server. So as yeah. you mentioned, you, you're using uh, BTC pay server. I, I'm a big fan. I use it myself as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with setting up and your experience in, you know, just evangelizing BTC pay? Um, so first of all, I, I want to make it clear that I am very careful not to endorse companies or projects as a whole. So what I'm going to do is speak about my personal experience. This is not a, a, a suggestion that this is um, a project you should go out and, and do something with, but I will happily talk about the things that have made my life better. I think one of the most interesting things about uh, BTC Pay Server, it's its origin story. And its origin story is incorporated in a tweet by Nicholas Dorier, where he said, um, and I'm going to paraphrase wildly, but... Uh, he basically said, well, fuck these guys. BitPay is a mess. I'm going to replace you with a script, uh, which uh, which is the classic motivation for open source software for decades um, and, and has been a fantastic way to launch projects where a company fails its own users and one of its users knows just enough coding to decide to re-implement the entire company. And at first, it seems like the most audacious thing you can say. And and how can it possibly ever work, right? This is a company with resources and developers, etc. Never underestimate the raw audacity and determination of someone who wants to make something work better. Uh, Linus Torvalds and Linux is probably the best example there. <laughs> it was a big fuck you to AT&T and SCO and IBM. Um, the end result of this was what started out as a simple payment uh, script that was there to do the event management and uh, HTTP uh, challenge response required to support the BitPay API has now become a multi-protocol platform uh, for retail payments. And it's amazing how it's evolved in that way. It's become so much more. Uh, So BTC Pay Server is a project written in C-sharp. At its core is a Bitcoin node, um, but also now a Lightning node. And it has a series of APIs that allow it to do uh, basic e-commerce functions like generating an invoice uh, for a shopping cart, 
uh, and then tracking whether that invoice has been paid and all of the nuances of what is the exchange rate for dollars or Canadian dollars or yen and what if the exchange rate changes in the 15 minutes since you made the payment and what if it doesn't get into the first block but only makes it in the second block and all of that crap that happens with real life payments and it does it beautifully. Uh, and it's an open source volunteer project, which is based on uh, donations. Um, and, and by the way, please do donate. Uh, they, they fund themselves independently. They haven't done a shitty ICO or anything like that. Um, and kudos to them. Uh, I started running BTC Pay Server about a year ago, um, quietly in the background. Um, I had a lot of trouble deploying it at first because I didn't follow their method. So BTC Pay is one of those things that you can deploy using a Docker image, which is a container, and you can do a one-click deployment on Azure or Amazon's uh, container service or any other Kubernetes Docker type um, container service. Um, but I already had uh, a well-connected uh, Bitcoin node, or several, in fact, uh, fully synced, fully indexed, full archive. And I already had several well-connected, properly run Lightning nodes. So I was like, I want to run BTC Pay Server, but with my nodes. I don't want to bootstrap new ones. And so I tried to reverse engineer their installation script. Uh, that was painful. Eventually, I managed to do it. Um, and then after several instances, I discovered that it was much easier to just let it deploy its own node and then ignore it. Um, so yeah, I've been running it now for more than a year. Uh, it's the basis. I, I run a little store, uh, the A. Antonop store at aantonop.com slash shop, uh, where I sell, uh, mugs. You, you can see this one. <laughs> not your keys, not your coins. Yeah, a little mug that says "Not your keys, not your coins," and other uh, slogans of those. It's not. It's not about really. It's not about making money. It's about uh, spreading dank memes and conversation starters for people in the crypto space, and um, and also playing with technologies like BTC Pay Server and Lightning. Uh, no fiat accepted. Uh, so the server takes. Um, uh, Bitcoin and Lightning payments through BTC Pay Server, and Ether and Litecoin payments through Coinbase Commerce, which is the non-custodial uh, service from Coinbase. Yeah, and, and how has the experience been? Uh, were there any other hurdles you faced along the way with setting up your BTC Pay or uh, getting Lightning working? You know, it, it can still be a little experimental, right? You still got to manage the node, and sometimes. Yeah if it hasn't caught up to the chain or other little things can come up, did you have anything like that uh, in terms of getting it going with, you know, Bitcoin and Lightning? Um, not from the BTC pay server side. Um, and keep in mind on the BTC pay server I run, I run uh, four different stores. Um, so I run uh, one for my events company, which manages things like tickets to conferences and things like that and payments from conferences. Uh, one for my, my uh, sort of consulting and um, uh, professional company where I, I do invoices for my clients, I run one for doing donations. So I used to have people send me donations to a vanity address, uh, Juan Andreas, um, and I took that away and now I have a, a BTC pay front end for that. Um, and one for the store, for the shop. Um, which means that I'm actually running um, a network of uh, three different Bitcoin nodes in three different geographic zones that, um, that check to see that they are following the same chain. So they, I, I have a kind of a master process that compares between them. And if one of them goes out of sync, it shuts all three of them down. Um, so that I can avoid problems where one of my nodes is being spoofed by network isolation. So I, I check the hashes of the most recent block and, and make sure they're all following the same chain and not diverging. Um, I also run uh, three different Lightning nodes, uh, which are running different software. 
including one that's embedded in BTC Pay with C Lightning, uh, one that's LND inside BTC Pay, and one that's LND outside of BTC Pay. Um, and then I run a, a few channels between them to keep them balanced. So there, it, it's a more complicated infrastructure, and most of the problems have come from the fact that it's a more complicated infrastructure. I kind of did that to myself um, because the purpose was not to run e-commerce and sell things. The purpose was uh, to run a learning experiment. Um, but I have helped other people set up BTC Pay uh, to run actual e-commerce, um, and from their perspective, it's pretty much a one-click install. It's very, very easy to do, including doing it properly, which means uh, putting a hardware wallet um, as the storage mechanism for your keys um, that never go online, uh, which is, I think, a very good idea. Yeah, that's awesome, man. With BTC Pay, you can set up the different stores, and then it, in inside each store, you have a wallet, and inside that wallet, you can put in an XPub or a ZPub, etc. Yeah, and that can be from your cold card or your ledger or your Trezor, and then that is a good way to, even though the you might be hosting it on a VPS, yeah. it's still the keys are held on your hardware wallet. Yeah, you can't do that with with Lightning, uh, of course, because Lightning is a, a hot wallet infrastructure. But then again, you shouldn't keep too much on your Lightning server. Um, they are now integrating with the HWI, Hardware Wallet Interface Specification, so that you can uh, plug in and initialize your hardware wallets uh, directly with BTC Pay Server. That's an interesting development. And they've also gradually had more and more contributions of various accessory software stacks, uh, whether that's Spark and Charge, which are um, two C Lightning modules. Um, Charge is uh, a, an e-commerce um, capable server, similar to what BTC Pay does for, um, for the BitPay API. And um, Spark, which is um, a very, very lightweight mobile wallet, uh, which is actually my preferred wallet I'm showing you here on my Android. Um, so I, I run Spark on my mobile, um, and it does everything through the server, which runs its own Lightning and Bitcoin node, um, which I really, really like. Um, and then they've got uh, a number of management tools like uh, Ride the Lightning or RTL, as it's known, a fantastic project that I really love and has made my life so much easier, uh, which is a, a web-based graphical user interface for running LND and, and now I think C Lightning because they've consolidated the APIs. Uh, and a whole bunch of other things. I mean, I keep discovering there's a, there's a plugin that allows you to link uh, BTC Pay to QuickBooks so that when you generate an invoice on QuickBooks, it can automatically generate and link the URL to a crypto payment invoice on BTC Pay. Haven't done that integration yet. Uh, Intuit threatened and then cut me off of their credit card service because I had the word Bitcoin on my website. They asked me to remove the word Bitcoin from my website, so I removed Intuit from my life. Uh, instead, <laughs> can't have a naughty word like Bitcoin on your website. Yeah, oh. it was it, the, that conversation was hilarious, um, and so I, uh, yeah, they they uh, they won't let me uh, get paid with credit cards. Boohoo! So um, I'm I'm a bit reluctant to try to integrate the BTC Pay server with my accounting software just in case they freak out and cut off my accounting software because that that would cause quite a mess. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's all, all these goodies. And what's happened is BTC Pay Server has become a, a platform that can fairly easily integrate a whole number of different services uh, similar to another project that I really like, which is called MyNode. Do you know yes, that one? Yes, I, I hosted uh, Taylor on for an episode a little while ago. I really like it. It's a really great one. What's your experience been? Oh, fantastic. Um, I run all of those. I mean, I built and ran all of those services and manually built something very similar to MyNode. It's not a single node in my case. Um, 
I, I run these kind of complex multi-availability zones on, on Amazon Web Services, as well as some privately hosted computers. Uh, so I don't put all of them on one computer. Instead, they're all like little containers that can start up and on their own. Um, but uh, what a great project, you know, making it easier for people to run some of the infrastructure of Bitcoin. Um, I'm very much for that. As people say in the space, you know, you're, if you don't have your own keys, you don't have your own coins. That's the difference between a third class citizen and a second class citizen. But um, if you run your own node and have your own consensus rules, that's when you're truly a first class uh, citizen of this crypto crypto space. So, you know, we've moved beyond um, just not your keys, not your coins. It's, it's now not your keys, not your consensus rules, not your node, uh, not your coins. Right. Yeah. It's a more, you know, you've got to, but that, that's the other thing as well. For a long time, we've been saying, okay, you've got to run your own node and hold your own keys. But how easy have, you know, has that been made for the average person out there? And I think, right. you know, these different it's projects, up to us. yeah, to like helping make it easy for the people to do that. Absolutely. It's up to us to make these things as easy as possible so that more and more people can do them. Uh, the trends are not very promising. Uh, I recently saw that um, Luke Jr.'s stats on uh, the total number of nodes in the Bitcoin network uh, dropped by about 8% in the last year. So I think we went from about 60,000 to just over 50,000 nodes um, in total. Uh, that's you know disappointing. But um, there's all of these projects now where uh, companies that are shipping ready-built nodes, um, you know, there's two or three of those. Um, and also a lot of these hobbyist projects where I've heard of people getting together at uh, Bitcoin meetups and having parties where they all set up uh, Raspberry Pi 4s um, and build nodes in a kind of group environment where when you get stuck, you can get some help from a friend. I, I think those are great. Um, whether you intend to run that node long-term or not, whether you want to be involved in this or not, the learning experience will always stay with you. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, one other area I was keen to ask you ask about, I know you recently were um, a speaker at La BitConf, and uh, yes. there's been... I think there's potentially a different understanding when you're coming from a country where, that has had these you know crazy monetary problems. And what what's been your experience uh, interacting with people in South America and you know for example Argentina? What's the difference in understanding? Is it more about suggesting practical tools that they can use to get Bitcoin and use Bitcoin in their lives? Um. That's part of it. For me, it's you know, it's it's not what I can do for the South American community. It's more what the South American community can and has done for me in in this journey. Um, my first LibitConf was the first LibitConf in 2013, uh, in December 2013 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, and that LibitConf changed my trajectory in the Bitcoin community. Before that LibitConf, I was um, very, very focused on technology and the, the politics of money was uh, secondary, interesting, but secondary to me. I went to that LibitConf and those two flipped. I came back and I started talking about Bitcoin in a very different tone. Uh, it reminded me of my childhood in Greece and the financial crisis and currency crisis we had had there, the run on the banks, because they were experiencing it in real time during the conference. Um, and I came back and I started talking about why Bitcoin is for the other six billion, why it's about, um, you know, preserving your financial freedom and uh, with a much more defiant tone, with a much more loud tone, um, with uh, much less to tolerance for playing nice with regulators, playing nice with the banks, um, helping them see the light. Uh, and I came back with a, well, fuck the banks attitude. They're never going to let us do this if we ask permission nicely. Um, we're going to, we're going to seize the initiative and we're going to do this despite, um, whatever any regulator government or bank says, because this is too important for too many people. So LeBitConf gave me that gift. It gave me the gift of perspective. 
I walked into a BitConf, a a super privileged, comfortable, financially included Norte Americano, and I walked out uh, an angry. Um, uh, an angry Greek with an attitude because uh, I got reminded of what the stakes were. Um, and and honestly, that did wonders for my ability to connect with people because um, by by changing my focus, I also changed my tone. And, and I started connecting with people who really saw the importance of this technology. That was the first. Um, there have been seven LabitConfs and I've been to six of them. Uh, every year, they do it in a different city in a different country, essentially touring Central and South America um, in a way that uh, brings this message to the places that need it the most. And it is, I, I do not want to miss any of them. The The vibe, um, the, the style of conversations that happen, the organizers um, are amazing. Um, and, and, and they've done an incredible job keeping it focused. No bullshit, no distractions, no marketing, no ICOs, no none of that. It's it's absolutely focused on financial inclusion and on teaching people how to build these things in their local community. As you said, I think you make a great point that it's stories that motivate people. So mm -hmm. for those of us and you know many of my listeners are people who are you know the bitcoin guy in their in their friend circle and they're trying to help communicate the value of bitcoin to people do you have any tips to close out with for them on how they can better communicate the value and you know potentially using stories as well on how they can communicate the value of bitcoin so i i often struggle with this because i think that for many of the people that we're surrounded by um bitcoin is no not yet a necessary technology and, and it's it's actually a technology that we shouldn't hope becomes necessary anytime soon because um for many of the people that surround us the financial system and the institutions that operate the financial system and the institutions of governance and democracy kind of sort of work yes they're breaking down yes they're getting worse there are all of these long-term risks and, you know, um, quantitative easing, inflation, stimulus, and all of this crap that's happening in the financial system. But there is this, um, there's this, uh, let's call it the privilege of freedom where you can go get on with your life without worrying about money when money works in your life. When, when the system of money still operates in your country, um, you can pretend it doesn't exist. It's invisible. It just goes into the background, right? Um, now, Bitcoin's for the other 6 billion because for them, it doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I think sometimes it's it's dangerous or um, not dangerous. Let's put it this way. Um, it, it can strain your friendships if you go out and you try to push something or you know preach aggressively or sell hard on a technology that most people don't really see much relevance into their life. So I go with a very soft approach. Um, for most people um, in my circle, where they have functional banking, uh, I tell them about why this is a cool technology that they might want to learn something about, just because it's interesting to learn. And I also talk to them about why... Um, it might be risky to have all of your eggs in one basket. And and uh, right now, all of their eggs are in one green basket uh, printed by the Federal Reserve. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, as risky as Bitcoin is, um, it's a hell of a lot riskier to have your home, your job, your savings, your retirement, your company's savings, um, and all of the savings and assets of all of the neighbors and all of the people you know, all in one thing. So from that perspective, a small amount of diversification. Um, hey, I mean, that's about as, as well as it can go. And let's hope most of our neighbors don't have a desperate need for Bitcoin in the next few years, because that will mean something went really, really wrong with the economy. I, I think for many of us Bitcoiners, we know that a system that's as fragile and and corrupted and broken as that will have problems in its future. Uh, but let's hope they're not 
uh, as bad as they as they might be. Now, let's hope we don't turn into Argentina or Cyprus or uh, Venezuela in order to promote Bitcoin. Oh, of course not. And I think um, there's certainly a you know a value of building a parallel system, right? We're just building right. a better parallel right. system, and people can opt in to that system if they so choose. Yeah, let's make it about having a choice, and that choice being cool and futuristic. Um, rather than uh, this is the lifeboat, it's very small, it rocks very hard, uh, but you'd better jump in uh, <laughs> because the big ship is sinking. Um, because no one wants to believe that story, even even if they they kind of see it's true, they're gonna they're gonna go for denial over their crazy friend who keeps pitching Bitcoin. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, look, I, I, I don't want to keep you too long, uh, Andreas, uh, but uh, make sure you shout out for the listeners. Uh, where can they find you and where can they follow your work? Um, so uh, aantonop.com is my website. Aantonop is my Twitter. Aantonop is my YouTube channel. All of my work is open source, free to use, share and enjoy and build upon um, my most recent book, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, uh, just dropped in December. And my next book, Mastering the Lightning Network, is coming out at the end of this year uh, as a collaboration, as I mentioned before. And, uh, you know, our last conversation uh, was about maximalism on the heels of me publishing Mastering Ethereum. And so now we're going to find out is mastering lightning enough to appease the maximalists and bring me back into their good graces? Or have I ever burned that bridge <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and will never gain back their trust because of mastering Ethereum? We'll see. I'll continue. I'll continue doing good books and good topics and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. That's right. We'll see how it goes. But uh, look, thank you very much for joining me, Andres. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Absolutely a pleasure as always. And uh, I hope we do this again soon. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to subscribe using your Podcatcher app and leave a review if you enjoy it as well. That helps me out. You can find all the links at my website, stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.